recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 25th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We're going to get right into um, Classical Records and German Origins Part 5 this evening. A, um, the, the fifth part of a six-part series I wrote in 2004 and 2005, and, and first published by Clifton Emmerheiser, of course. Clifton's still waiting for Part 7. I pray that I could do that, possibly, this year, but which was um, intended to be on the Huns and the Finns. It has already been established here, in part three of this essay, that the Scythia of Diodorus Siculus extended west to the Amber District of the Baltic, and perhaps even to the Elbe, as it was described by that historian. Establishing this, we had cited a footnote from the Loeb Classical Library edition of Diodorus Siculus that, in turn, had cited a book called The Ancient Explorers by Carey and Warmington. Since presenting part three of this series, we have been able to obtain a copy of that book, which was published in New York in 1929. From the information in the book, it is learned that the authors were professors of history at the University of London. The same Warmington, who's a co-author of the book, is also listed among the former editors of Harvard's Loeb Classical Library in the title pages of our copy of Diodorus Siculus, which was probably published around that same time. Our copy of this book, The Ancient Explorers, which we found three weeks ago at a used book market on the internet for about $12, was stamped as discarded by the Normandale State Junior College in Bloomington, Minnesota. We would interpret that as a reflection of modern academia's disregard for real history and can see our copy as a tiny relic saved from the ashes of the Holocaust of Christendom. Of course, such a description is made tongue-in-cheek and is quite purposely superfluous since this is only one small copy of one small book. We do not believe that the book is perfect, but it does represent an earnest endeavor to understand archaeology the way it should be interpreted, which is through the lens of the classical histories and not in spite of the classical histories. And there is no doubt that at least most modern academics despise that idea because it keeps white history and all worthwhile civilization firmly in the hands of white men. In part three of this essay, we presented a citation for the Library of History where Diodorus 
says that directly opposite, I'm sorry, from the Library of History, where Theodore says that directly opposite the part of Scythia, which lies above Galatia, there is an island out in the open sea, which is called Basilia. On this island, the waves of the sea cast up great quantities of what is known as amber, which is to be seen nowhere else in the inhabited world. We then said that a footnote in the Loeb Classical Library edition identifies this island as Heligo Land, H-E-L-I-G-O-L-A-N-D, one word, Heligo Land citing Carey and Warmington, The Ancient Explorers, page 38, which would put the western border of Scythia in the north as far, at least as far west, as the mouth of the Elbe. On page 38 of their book, Carey and Warmington are discussing the travels of Pythias, and it must be kept in mind that from circumstantial evidence, Pythias's travels must have been undertaken sometime between 330 and 300 BC. And, and that's determined, because Pythias's work is lost, that's determined by the historians who are quoted who mention Pythias in later works such as Didor Siculus or Strabo. Pythias's work has not survived, and it is only known from other ancient authors, some of whom were accepting and others of whom were highly critical of his accounts. So on page 38 of their book, Carrie and Warmington state that these discordant data raise one greater and one lesser problem, the name of the Amber Isle and the extent of Pythias's cruise along the European coast. A comparison of the various ancient texts suggests that the island bore the native name of Abalus, which they say is Celtic for the word apple, that the Greeks variously transcribed this into Balsia, Balesia, or Basilia, which is actually very similar to the Greek word for king, and that Baunonia is a copyist's blunder. Baunonia is the word for the island which appears in one historian, Polybius, who quotes Pythias. But the question that matters is not what the island was called or miscalled, but where it lay. The mention of Scythia and the Tanais, which is the modern Don, might suggest that Pythias entered the Baltic Sea and followed it as far as the Vistula, which on this hypothesis was mistaken by him for the Don, the Greeks knowing the Don from the Black Sea and the Danube River, they didn't really know it from its northern origins. Moreover, if we read, read Gutones and, uh, in, in Pythias's description and identify these with the Goths, Pythias's estuary, an estuary he described along the coast of northern Europe, must have lain in the eastern Baltic, which was the early habitat of that tribe, 
and may be imagined as running from Regan to Memau or Libau in modern Eastern Germany, and, and I think Libau is in modern Poland, I'm not sure. The Amber Island, in this case, would be Bornholm. On the other hand, we must beware of attaching too strict a sense to the term Scythia. In Pythias's age, the Mediterranean peoples had not yet made the acquaintance of the Germans. Hence, they extended Scythia to all that lay beyond. Celtica, all that lay beyond Celtica, I'm sorry, still less should we lay any stress on the allusion to the Tanes. This occurs in a jocular remark of Polybius to the effect that Pythias returned all along Europe from Gales, which is in Spain, to the Tanes. This is, well, Spain or Portugal, actually. This was plainly nothing more than a loose expression like our Dan to the Beersheba, or China to Peru. Again, the best manuscripts of Pliny read Guyunabanus, not Gutanabus, meaning it didn't read as a reference to the land of the gods. And this probably should be expanded into in Guyanabus, a group of peoples who dwelt in the northwest of Germany. And I'm not sure of that reference, but it's not important to the point we are making here. Finally, the Amber Island is located, quote-unquote, according to Polybius, according to Pythias, above Gaul, and therefore must have lain in the Atlantic. In all probability, then, Pythias's estuary was the Frisian blight that would be in modern-day in modern Holland, the, the Netherlands, the Frisian Bight, I'm sorry, from Texel to Jutland, and the Amber Island, Heligoland, which no doubt was at all times the depot for Atlantic amber. The Frisian Bight, it is true, does not extend over anything like 660 miles, but as we shall see presently, Pythias's measurements of distances were often much overstated. We may conclude, therefore, that Pythias sailed to the Elbe estuary, and since the Amber Island was no doubt the object of his quest, we may assume that he put out from this point to Heligoland. But the manner in which the natives disposed of their amber suggests that in Pythias's day it had ceased to be an article of commerce, the late 4th century B.C., from this point, Pythias returned to the Mediterranean by a direct journey along the European coast. So much can be inferred from Polybius's remark. So we see some of the problems inherent in understanding fragments of a writer such as Pythias, which are quoted or sometimes perhaps misquoted or miscopied by the scribes in the surviving works of other, even later writers here in the case of Polybius. We would only assert that in Pythias's age, the Mediterranean peoples had not yet made the acquaintance of the Germans, as Carrie and Warmington assert here, because the Germans 
being descended from the tribes of the Galatahi, who were earlier called Sake and Scythians, had not yet fully occupied all of these areas in the north and west, where they are later found by the Romans. And we're going to establish that from Carrie and Warmington's own work in a few moments, a little later on this evening. In any event, the evidence strongly suggests that Heligoland, which lies off the coast of Denmark and above the western portion of Germany in the Atlantic Ocean, was indeed the amber island of the accounts of Pythias. Since Phoenicians and others had settled in Britain and Ireland and Denmark and the surrounding coasts and had been exploiting natural resources in these areas for many centuries before Pythias, it is very likely that this was indeed a source of amber in the Mediterranean trade. In the very next portion of part three of this series of essays, after we quoted Theodore Siculus in reference to the Amber Island and Heligoland, we then quoted Herodotus, where he said of the amber trade, I do not allow that there is any river on, to which the barbarians give the name of Eridanus, emptying itself into the northern sea, whence, as the tale goes, amber is procured. In his edition of this, of this passage, <clears throat> which is paragraph one, 115 in book three of Herodotus' histories, George Rawlinson wrote in the footnote, here Herodotus is overcautious and rejects as fable what we can see to be truth. The Amber District upon the Northern Sea is the coast of the Baltic, about the Gulf of Danzig, and the mouths of the Vistula and Neiman, which is still one of the best Amber regions in the world. Rawlinson was writing that in the 1870s. I think it was 1872, perhaps, when his edition of Herodotus was first published. And he goes on to say, the very name, Eridanus, lingers there in the Rodon, the small stream which washes the west side of the town of Danzig. The word Eridanus seems to have been applied by the early inhabitants of Europe, especially to great and strong-running rivers. That's the end of the quote from Herodotus. The idea that Greeks, Romans, and other peoples from the ancient world, from the Mediterranean world, such as Thracians, may have explored these areas in northern Europe before the westward movements of the Scythians and Cimmerians from Asia is not fantastic and has been published by us earlier in this series. In support of this, we shall now supply another amber actor for Carrie and Warrington. From pages 117 to 119 of the Ancient Explorers, from the title From Adriatic to Baltic. And they say, 
from the head of the Adriatic, the lowest of all the alpine passes leads to the valley of the Save, and thence to the lower Danube, or along the valley of the Rab, towards the great Danube bend. From this latter point, another easy path through the Moravian Gate connects with the North European plain. Finally, and this is talking about trade routes, of course, finally, an almost direct route heads due north from the upper Oder Valley by fords and land bridges across the rivers and marshes of the German-Polish borderland to the Vistula and the Baltic. As the Danube and the Rhine form the Cardo Maximus of Europe, <clears throat> so the route from Venice or Trieste to Danzig constitutes <clears throat> the Cardo Decumanus, and the labels Cardo Maximus, Cardo Decumanus, seek to describe the primary east-west and north-south passages across Central Europe. The first section of this crossroad provided in prehistoric times one of the chief passages from the Mediterranean to Central Europe. From circa 1500 BC, which was about the time of the, um, the exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt, from circa 1500 BC, the bronze work of northern Italy was conveyed along it to the Danube and thence into the Carpathian lands or Bohemia. About the beginning of the Iron Age, circa 900 BC, the entire route was brought into use for the importation into Italy of Baltic amber, 900 BC. That's the time of Solomon and, and perhaps Rehoboam and Jeroboam. The entire route was brought into use for the importation into Italy of Baltic amber, which henceforth supplemented and even supplanted the amber from Jutland, which we know today is the lower part of um, modern Denmark. And we have Carrie and Warmington on, um, on that very page site. The passage which we have already read from earlier in their book on page 38 concerning Pythias and Heligoland. They say, in return, Etruscan bronzeware was traded as far as the Vistula. And Carrie and Warmington are putting this story together mostly from archaeological records as well as from certain citations in ancient histories. Now, we would assert that in 1500 BC and in 900 BC, when they have um, evidence that the Italians, the people of Italy, were getting amber from the Baltic, there were no Germanic peoples the way that we know Germanic peoples in later history. And that's because there were no Scythians, there were no Cimmerians wandering into um, or migrating into Western Europe from Asia. There were no Galatahi. But what we have, 
and we've said this many times before, is we have in the um, the, the historical, the, the Weltanschauung, the worldview of history from the biblical perspective, which is what identity Christians should have, we have records in our Bible of Ionians, Thracians, Lydians, the Semitic Lydians, from whom all classical records say that the Etruscans descended. So we have Ionians, Javan, Genesis 10, Thracians, Kiros, Genesis 10, chapters, chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, Lud, Genesis 10, the, the, the son of Shem, which gives us the, um, the Lydians of Anatolia from whom the Phrygians descended, and Tarshish, which is a son of Japheth, as well as Medai and the Medes, who we've seen from Herodotus earlier in the series. Some of those people had made their way into Europe at an early time. The, um, the Genesis 10 nations were um, occupying parts of Europe for perhaps at, at least, according to the Septuagint chronology of the, um, the patriarchs of the Bible, for at least 27, 26, 2700 years. So let's say 2600 years before the first literature, the first written records appear in Europe, which are are the the poems of Homer and and Hesiod and the lyric poets of the Greeks. So we have well over 2,000 years of Ionian Greeks and and, um, Trojans for a long time. And, and the Phoenicians, the Malaysians, the Malaysians were Phoenicians from the Levant who, who settled um, the, the southwestern portion of Anatolia, but from there they had many colonies around the Black Sea, up and down the Danube River, and we had the Romans, and we had the Etruscans, who were Lydians, and the Tartesians, who were um, in southern Spain, and we see record of the ships of Tarshish and Solomon and Hiram and David's time. Well, well, these people had at least 2,000 years to exploit and to explore wherever they could in Europe in search of minerals, raw materials, salt, Salt was extremely important to them, to their economy, to the preservation of food. So those records we have, those activities we have no written record of. But Carrie and Warmington have have, um, made these conclusions from the archaeological record. So the Romans, or, or I should say, the Italians and the Etruscans, the Italians being the Greeks dwelling in Italy because they were all Greeks 
and um, Minoans and, and Phoenicians and other people recorded in ancient history who, who settled Italy, they were bringing amber from the Baltic before there were Germans, as we know Germans. There may have been other peoples who wandered north, settled there for some time, but those other peoples are certainly not the ancestors of the people, the German peoples inhabiting those lands in the historic period. Back to Carrie and Warmington. In the historical age, traffic on the trans-European route, or at any rate, on its southern sector, remained predominantly Italian. It has been supposed that the mysterious gifts transmitted to Apollo of Delos in the days of Herodotus, 450 BC, consisted of amber. But the fact that they were packed in straw and disappeared from view at Delos indicates that they were perishables, the honey, perhaps, of his Hyperborean bees, or wheat. Herodotus' tale therefore does not prove that the Greeks ever participated in the amber trade. So they're disputing Herodotus' account of Greek participation in the amber trade, but Carrie and Warmington are asserting that the Etruscans, where they have archaeological evidence, did indeed participate in that trade. They go on to say, Neither is it possible to demonstrate Greek travel to the Baltic on the evidence of two straight coins of the Hellenistic period, which have been found in Cilicia. In all probability, these were conveyed in native hands as mere curios. The somewhat more numerous pieces of Apollonia and Dyrrachium, belonging to the 2nd and 1st centuries BC, which have been unearthed in Transylvania, together with Roman money, may have been carried by Greek traders traveling in company with Italians. But at best, the Greeks only gained a very slight acquaintance with the route from the Adriatic to the Danube. And that's probably a very accurate statement when compared to the histories. They, um, we're going to continue quoting Carrie and Warmington here for a couple of paragraphs. From 700 B.C., and this is important to know, from 700 B.C., the traffic between Italy and the Danube lands was interrupted by movements of Scythian or Celtic tribes. And in the 4th century, the importation of Baltic amber tailed off. This is during the same period in which we assert that the Cimmerians, the Celtic tribes, the Cimmerians and the Sacae, later known as Galatahi, the Scythians, were moving in from Asia to occupy Central and Western Europe. They continue. But in the last two centuries B.C., Italian adventurers opened up the lands of the Middle and Lower Danube afresh. And, and this is in the same period of time that the Romans were at war with the Cimbri or Cimmerians. And that war, according to all accounts, took place in parts of what are today Austria, Germany, and France. At this time, 
Transylvania and Wallachia, which are now roughly parts of Romania and Hungary, were visited by merchants who paid in Roman denarii. About 150 BC, a discovery of gold in Styria, which today is a large section of modern Austria, just north of the border of Slovenia, a discovery of placer gold in Styria caused a rush of Italian fortune hunters into this temporary El Dorado. These undesirable pioneers, to be sure, were soon driven out by the natives, but other more legitimate traders established a regular traffic in Styrian iron. The decisive move in the exploration of the Middle Danube regions was made under the early Roman emperors, who advanced the frontier to the Save and thence into the Danube Bend. With these military movements went the resumption of Italian commerce between the beyond the Danube as far as Silesia, which lies mostly in modern Poland, with smaller parts in Germany and the Czech Republic of which plentiful evidence survives in Roman money and Capuan bronzeware, which now replaced Etruscan bronze as the chief article of export. From a remark by a Greek writer named Philemon, who probably lived in the age of Augustus, concerning the fossil amber of Scythia, it may be inferred that imports of amber from the Baltic were resumed towards the beginning of the Christian era. A new Philip, or a new stimulus, Philip is sort of an odd word for a stimulus, a new Philip was given to this traffic in the reign of Nero, when a Roman knight of unknown name set out from Carnuntum near Vienna for the Amber Coast, and reached it after a journey of 600 miles. From the length of his trip, it is, fairly certain, it is a fairly certain inference that he followed the ordinary route through the Moravian Gate and Silesia. This nameless knight returned safely to Rome and brought back so much amber that his employer, the Procurator Munarum, or Minister of Sports, was able to stud the safety nets at the amphitheater with the precious stones. Of all explorations by Roman civilians, this was the most extensive and had the biggest results. Not only did it benefit the intermediate trade with Silesia and Poznania in west-central Poland, where Roman coins in the late 1st and early 2nd centuries are particularly frequent, but it led to an expansion of commerce along the German coast across the Baltic to Gotland, which is an island in the Baltic, and in a lesser degree to Bornholm, Oland, and even to the Swedish mainland. Although the traffic beyond Carnuntum was left in the hands of German chapmen, the route to the Baltic nonetheless became accurately known to Greek and Roman geographers, and most of their information about the Baltic reached them along this track. In his Germania, written in AD 98, 
Tacitus writes with unwanted precision concerning the tribes of eastern Germany and the Suiones of Sweden and the adjacent isles. Ptolemy, though somewhat confused about the Suiones, whom he transfers to the coast of Germany, shows some knowledge of the East Baltic shore as far as Riga. Now, we would not be so anxious to imagine Ptolemy, who wrote a few decades after Tacitus, to have been wrong. And to place the Suiones of Tacitus entirely in Sweden at this time. That's not exactly accurate. Rather, Tacitus, after mentioning the Gatones, the Rugi, and the Lemovi, only said the following in Germania, paragraph 44. He said, and now began the states of the Suiones, situated on the ocean itself, and these, besides men and arms, are powerful in ships. Tacitus's words rather imply that the Suiones were indeed on the coast of Germany, and they may have already been in the process of transferring themselves to Sweden, rather than blaming Ptolemy for having errantly transferred the Suiones to Germany. In any event, here in Carrion Warmington, we see a verification of our own hypotheses that the tribes of the Old World, the tribes of the Mediterranean, were indeed exploring the north of Europe, exploiting the mineral wealth which they had found, and their trade was interrupted from about 700 B.C. by the coming of the Canarians and the Sake, who were also called Galatahi by the Greeks. And that trade was interrupted until well after 400 BC. This is, um, this certainly also agrees with the words of Livy, the Roman historian who called the Gauls who invaded Italy a strange race, new settlers. And when I quoted that in part one of Germanic, of classical records and Germanic origins, part one of this series, I stated that we could not imagine that the Italians, the Romans of Livy's time, or the Romans of 400 B.C., when the Galatahi invade northern Italy, which is the time that Livy is talking about. We could not imagine that the Romans didn't know who their neighbors were to the north. And Carrie and Warmington are verifying that for us, that the Romans certainly had already explored the north far and wide and were importing Baltic amber into northern Italy. Corroborating Livy's statement that the Galatahi were not known to the Romans, 
until they invaded the lands of the Etruscans nearly until nearly 400 BC is a statement by Diodorus Siculus who wrote concerning the time of Alexander the Great in book 17 of his library of history that when Agesias was archon at Athens the Romans installed as consuls Gaius Publius and Papirius and the 100 and 14th celebration of the Olympic Games took place in which Messinus of Rhodes won the foot race. This was about 324 BC. Now from practically all the inhabited world came envoys on various missions, some congratulating Alexander on his victories, some bringing him crowns, others concluding others concluding treaties of friendship and alliance many bringing handsome presents and some prepared to, to defend themselves against accusations apart from the tribes and cities as well as the local rulers of Asia many of their counterparts in Europe and Libya put in an appearance from Libya Carthaginians and Libby Phoenicians and all those who inhabit the coast as far as the pillars of Heracles from Europe the Greek cities and the Macedonians also sent embassies as well as the Illyrians and most of those who dwell about the Adriatic Sea the Thracian peoples and even those of their neighbors the Gauls which is a Greek word Galatahi whose people became known then first in the Greek world so the Gauls weren't popularly introduced into the Greek world until the time of Alexander the Great according to Diodorus Siculus as we have cited here earlier in the series it must be remembered that Diodorus had testified elsewhere that originally and properly Celts and Gauls or Celts and Galatahi were two different peoples and the Celts were the more original inhabitants of the West Herodotus knew about the Scythians who were not yet called Galatahi that didn't happen until the fourth century until the time of Alexander the Great until the time of the historian Polybius and, and, and other writers and, and philosophers of the fourth century and later. Herodotus knew about Celts and Scythians, and he placed the Scythians in the exact same place that the writers of the fourth and third centuries, as Diodorus does here. Herodotus had the Scythians in the same places where these later writers had the Galatahi. While, as Diodorus accounted, most of the Eastern and Central Europe, including what is now modern Germany as Scythia, 400 years before Diodorus, Herodotus had likewise accounted the Danube and its tributaries from the north as Scythian rivers. Strabo too had often discussed the Scythians, or Sake, as they were also called, who were north of the Danube and west of the Black Sea. But Strabo had written over 400 years after Herodotus, and perhaps 30 to 50 years later 
than Diodorus. While Diodorus did not use the term German, he was certainly familiar with the writings of Julius Caesar, and Caesar did use the term German. Yet Diodorus used only the terms Celts and Galatahi. And even though Diodorus told us of the distinctions between those words and how originally they described different peoples, the Celts being the earlier inhabitants of the West, he used those words interchangeably when referring to both the people of Celtica and those of the lands north of the Danube. While we learned from Strabo that the Romans made a distinction between them, which was certainly an arbitrary distinction, the Romans calling those Galatahi and the Celts of Celtica after the name Gauls, and those Galatahi east of the Rhine after the name Germans. Strabo wrote in Greek, and he cited many earlier Greek writers, and it is evident, and this is important in understanding Strabo's citations, it is evident that most often his perspective was that of a Greek, and usually in agreement with the earlier writers whom he cites. Yet where Strabo writes of the peoples of Northern Europe of his own time, it is in an era when Rome had been fighting many battles against the Northern tribes in an attempt to establish and even expand its Northern borders and its control over the inhabited Earth. And in these places, Strabo's perspective is clearly a Roman perspective, where he is most likely obtained his information from Roman sources. So when Strabo writes of antiquity, his perspective is Greek, and he follows the perspective of the Greek historians before him. But when Strabo writes of his own time, his perspective is clearly very Roman and he must be getting his information from Roman sources. Keeping this in mind, Strabo writes of Northern Europe, now the parts that are beyond the Rhenus and Celtica, meaning the lands east of the Rhine, are to the north of the Ister. These are the territories of the Galatic and the Germanic, and Strabo explains in the subsequent paragraph that Germanic means genuine Galatahi. These are the territories of the Galatic, meaning the territories of the Galatahi, and the Germanic tribes, extending as far as the Bastanians and the Tiragetans and the River Boristanes, which is the modern Dnieper and the territories of all the tribes between this river and the Tanais, which is the Don, and the mouth of Lake Mahiotis, which is the little Sea of Azov, north of the Black Sea, extend up into the interior as far as the ocean, meaning the Baltic Ocean, and are washed by the Pontic, meaning the Black Sea. So, Strabo is basically giving us the limits of what he considered Germania, which is uh, very close to the description 
by Tacitus. The Tyridentans were those Gede who lived along the Tyrus River, which is the modern Dniester. The Bastonians are found inhabiting the region, which elsewhere by Strabo was called Little Scythia. It was on the western shores of the Black Sea, south of the Danube River. And they are said by Strabo to be a Germanic tribe, these Bastonians. And we shall discuss them further. What is most striking here is in Strabo's account in Book 7 is an absence of any mention of Scythians. He only calls them Galatahi and Celtae. We find um, mention of Germanic tribes because Strabo is also using the word Germania. We find mention of Germanic tribes occupying the territory where previously we found mention of Scythians or Sake for nearly 500 years up to Strabo's writing of this statement. And this is from Strabo's Geography, Book 7, Chapters 1 and 3. So for up to 500 years, these people are called Scythia and Sake, and Strabo gets to um, Book 7 and gives a general description of Northern Europe, and he's calling these people Germans. They're in the same place where he had mentioned earlier, and where many earlier writers had mentioned Scythians and Sake. Of the Scythians in Europe, the historian Thucydides, who is writing towards the end of the 5th century BC, in his History of the Peloponnesian War, in Book 2, in Chapter 97, had said, For there is no nation, not to say of Europe, but neither of Asia that are comparable to this, meaning the Scythians of Europe, or that as long as they agree are able, one nation to one, to stand against the Scythians. The only logical conclusion is that by Strabo's time, the Romans had created yet another distinction. The Scythians of Europe, who the Greeks from the 4th century had called Galatahi, were the same people who were now being called Germans. As Strabo had often explained that many of the Scythians were nomads, dwelling in wagons, and he said that of Scythians in Geography Book 11, Chapter 2, and living off their flocks were eaters of cheese made of mare's milk, where he quotes the tragic poet Aeschylus. Strabo likewise related this same thing of the Germans. He said, it is a common characteristic of all the peoples in this part of the world, and, and here in a Loeb Library edition of Strabo, 
is even a footnote which reminds the reader that Strabo means the Germans and the Galatahi. It is a common characteristic of all the peoples in this part of the world that they migrate with ease. They do not kill the soil or even store food, but live in small huts that are merely temporary structures, and they live for the most part off their flocks as the nomads do, so that in imitation of the nomads, they load their household belongings on their wagons and with their beasts turn wheresoever they think best. Strabo's Geography, Book 7, Chapter 1. Strabo wrote this while discussing many of the Germanic tribes, such as the Suevi, who were later described by Tacitus in the Germania, and we're going to discuss them this evening. Here it is clear that Strabo has described these Germans in the same exact manner that he had described the Scythians. And they were found occupying the same lands that they were said in many places elsewhere to have been occupied by Scythians. For instance, while Strabo described the displacement of those Gede north of the Danube by Scythians, which he mentions in Book 7, Chapter 3, Tacitus, writing maybe 70 or 80 years after Strabo died, Tacitus mentions no Gede north of the Danube, and Tacitus mentions no Scythians in Europe, in his Germania. But he names German tribes occupying those same lands that were called Scythians by Strabo. It is quite evident that with all of these things considered, the Germans are indeed the Scythians, and only the names have changed. And we have seen at length in earlier portions of the series that they all were said to have come from Asia. It could not have been an accident that in his description of those peoples inhabiting Northern Europe, in his seventh book, Strabo neglected to mention the Scythians. In his second book, he had given a statement similar to the one repeated above from Book 7. And he said, this river, meaning the Danube, flows from the west towards the east and the Euxine Sea. It leaves on its left the whole of Germany, which begins at the Rhine, and the country of the Getans, and the country of the Tyrigetans, Bastonians, and Sarmatians, as far as the river Tanais, the modern Don, and the lake Myotis, the Sea of Azov. And it leaves on its right the whole of Thrace, meaning to the south, Illyria, and lastly and finally, Greece. And that's Geography Book 2, Chapter 5. Here again we see there are no Scythians mentioned in Europe, although Strabo gave much testimony elsewhere, which he was quoting from older writers, confirming the prominence of Scythians in Europe. So when we read Strabo, or when we read Theodorus Siculus, we have to very carefully watch the context of the passages and put them in their proper place 
in time because both writers wrote voluminous works quoted from many, many other historians and geographers who preceded them. When we read Strabo, the only explanation is that in Book 7 and in Book 2, they are being called Germans, and the Germans are indeed the Scythians of the earlier writers, which Strabo quotes elsewhere. And here Strabo portrays Germany as extending from the Rhine to the Black Sea, north of the Danube, except for one small region held by the Gede. And Strabo tells us in Book 7, in paragraph in, in chapter 3 that the Bastonians are German. This is the same extent to which Tacitus assigns the land of the Germania nearly a century later. Strabo tells us elsewhere that the Gede share a border with the Germanic Suevi, yet indicates that the Gede were driven south of the Danube by the Scythians. He says in Book 7, Chapter 1, that they share a border. Would the, the Gede share a border with the Germanic Suevi? Or the Suevi. And then, in Book 7, Chapter 3, he tells us, yet that the Gede were driven south of the Danube by the Scythians. And Strabo, I'm sorry, and Tacitus named several tribes inhabiting that same region in his Germania. But Tacitus says nothing about Scythians. Rather, Tacitus tells us that east of the Quadi, who are a division of the Suebi, dwell the Germanic Marsigni and the Buri, who are not Suebi, but both exactly like the Suebi in language and mode of life. And then Tacitus tells us, dwell the Cotini and the Asi, who both pay tribute to the Suebi and to the Sarmatians. So they would be near Thrace, along the eastern part of the Danube. Using language as his determinant, Tacitus distinguishes the Cotini and the Asi from the Germans. And he says that the Cotini are Celts, and we will discuss that further below, and that the Asi are Pannonian, that's in the Germania, paragraph 43. It is possible, yet difficult to ascertain, that the Asi were a remnant of the Gede, whom Tacitus does not mention, who managed to remain north of the Danube. As discussed in part three of this essay, Pannonia was a Roman province south of the Danube, and with Pannonia was apparently inhabited by a mixture of Celtic, Illyrian, and Thracian tribes. Before continuing a discussion of Germany, as it was perceived by Strabo and Tacitus, it is appropriate to discuss the Galatahi and Scythians as they were mentioned by the historian Polybius. Polybius lived from about 208 down to 126 BC, which would be, which would put his death about 150 years before the death of Strabo. 
And the main part of the history which he wrote covers the years 264 to 146 B.C. His work is an excellent work concerning the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage and the exploits of Hannibal and Scipio. But he also described wars of the period among the Greek states to the east and the causes for and the beginnings of the Roman Empire. And Polybius was an apologist for the Roman Empire. Now, some people may say, oh, the Roman Empire didn't start until the time of the emperors. And that's simply not true. That's pretty silly. And an empire is one government which rules over many different nations of people. The form of government doesn't matter. If it rules over many different nations of people, it's an empire. America, here on the continent of North America, the United States, is an empire. It's technically an empire. A nation, a kingdom, is a king who rules over one people. If that king conquers other peoples, he becomes an emperor. A nation is a single people living under a government and a contiguous land together with common history and culture. That's a nation. The Romans were an empire. As soon as they began to conquer the Greek tribes of Italy, 300 years before the first emperor, the Romans by this time, by the time of Polybius, had already conquered the Carthaginians, Italy, much of Greece, Macedonia. They already conquered much of Anatolia. That They were well on their way to becoming an empire, even though the form of government was technically still a republic. So Polybius' work is an excellent work concerning the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage and the exploits of Hannibal and Scipio. But he also described the wars of the period among the Greek states to the east and the causes for and the beginnings of the Roman Empire for which he was an apologist. A lot of the Greek states had invited Rome into their affairs. Many authors who write about the Celts cite Polybius in an endeavor to show that either the Celts had dominion throughout all of northern Europe at one time, or that they originated in the east, or both. Like the later Diodorus Siculus, Polybius also used the terms Galatahi and Celts interchangeably, and he never used the term German, calling all of the people of the north Galatahi. Concerning the origins of peoples, the founding of cities and related things, very interestingly, Polybius did not write. He refused to write about those things, and he explains his reasons for abstaining from them at length in Book 9 of his history. We won't get into that, but suffice that, that it's, um, to say it is good enough for our purposes here. Polybius directly mentioned the Scythians in Europe only one time, where, and, and all the rest of the time, he called them Galatahi. But at one time, of a certain point along the coast near Byzantium, he writes, 
It is here, they say, that Darius bridged the straits when he crossed to attack the Scythians. That's in his histories in Book 4, Chapter 43. Yet Polybius mentioned the Galatahi quite often. Both those of north of Greece who had conquered Thrace and invaded Anatolia, and those further west. While Polybius mentions the Galatahi, or Celts, he says nothing of detriment to what is being presented here, but neither are his mentions of those people of any great assistance. Yet in general, they support one major contention we are making here, that those people of Europe, originally said to be Scythians, were the same people later called Galatahi by the Greeks and then divided into Germans and Gauls by the Romans. Since in the era of Herodotus and Thucydides, only Scythians were known in the north, and neither Herodotus nor Thucydides ever used or even knew the term Galatahi and only Celts were known in the west, west of the Rhine. Yet later people of the north were called Galatahi, and no longer are Scythians mentioned there. When Polybius mentioned Scythians one time, he was talking about something that had happened perhaps 250 years before his time, in the days of the Persians and their attacks on the Greeks, when Darius first attempted to conquer the Scythians, just before his son, Xerxes, had invaded Greece, actually a couple of decades before. So these people are called Scythians, where Darius was bridging the waters to conquer the Scythians. And we'll read another quote in reference to that momentarily. Later, they were called Galatahi, and the Scythians disappeared. Both Scythians and Galatahi are described by Strabo in the exact same manner, where Strabo is certainly discussing the same people in two different eras, the same people at two different times by two different names where he quotes from earlier writers or writes of early times, he calls them Scythians, where he refers to them in his own time or in times more recent to his own and quoting writers who lived more closely to his own time, he calls the same people Galatahi. Polybius also makes statements which show that the archaeological Holstead culture should not be so readily associated with the Galatahi. It should probably be associated with Roman and, and Phoenician, Malaysian settlements and Greek settlements along the Danube and their trade with the Galatahi. Polybius says of the Galatahi that their lives were very simple and they had no knowledge whatever of any art or science. And that goes with their always being on the move, as Strabo described them. A pastoral people that are always on the move have a hard time developing arts and sciences. So, in that same manner, 
Polybius goes on to say, and that their possessions were scarce so that they could shift where they chose, meaning that they had very few possessions so that they could move around whenever they wanted to, just as Strabo described them. Polybius also described at length their highly inferior weapons and how easily their swords bent after a single hard blow. None of this accords with the more advanced metallurgy and the clearly fine arts of the Hallstatt culture, which more likely belonged to Thracians, Malaysians, other Phoenicians, and other earlier earlier settlers of the Danube River Valley and Western Europe, who could be called by many archaeologists proto-Celts. In the times of Strabo and Tacitus, a Germanic tribe, which we've already mentioned, called the Bastane, dwelt on the Danube near the Black Sea, in the same region which Strabo and others had called Little Scythia, elsewhere in their writings. Polybius mentions these people who were the reason for a mission of the Dardanians. The Dardanians were an Illyrian tribe to the Roman Senate in 177 and 176 BC. At this time, the Dardanians were appealing to Rome for help, right? And a and hundred years before that, Many of the Greek city-states have done the same thing, inviting Rome to become involved in Greek affairs. Well, the Illyrians sent this mission, and this is, what, this is what is said about it. This is what Polybius says about it. A mission from the Dardanians now arrived, meaning in Rome, telling of the Bastane, their numbers, the huge size and the valor of their warriors, and also pointing out that Perseus and the Galatahi or Galatians of Anatolia, the ones that, um, this is 177-176 BC, 50 years before this, a tribe of the Galatahi had invaded um, Greece and sacked Greece and had a war with the king of Pergamus, Attalus, the king of Pergamus, and he defeated the Galatahi and allowed them to settle in Phrygia, in the ancient land of Phrygia, which later became known as, as Galatia in Anatolia. That was the people to whom Paul wrote the epistle to the Galatians, and, and we will establish that one day soon when we present that epistle coming up at Christogenia on Friday nights. So, the Bastane are described as, by this embassy from the Dardanians as being a large and powerful people and also as being in league with the Galatians of Anatolia. So, there's certainly... That, that certainly indicates, that alliance certainly indicates a familial co connection, which certainly does exist. They said they were much more afraid of him, meaning the Galatians in Anatolia, than of the Bastane, and they begged for aid. 
envoys from Thessaly also arrived, confirming the statement of the Dardanians and begging for help. Now, Thessaly is the northern part of Greece, just south of Macedonia. These Thestarnae are not said by any of these writers to have migrated from anywhere, nor to have been conquerors of the Scythians or Galatahi who had previously inhabited that region. And so it seems plausible that Thestarnae is only a name for the Scythian tribe which had long inhabited the area, of which the Greeks and Romans only later acquired a more intimate knowledge. Strabo was uncertain about the Bastarne, and he says, but what is beyond Germany, and what beyond the countries which are next after Germany, whether one should say the Bastarne, as most writers suspect, or say that others lie in between, it is not easy to say, or whether any part is uninhabitable by reason of the cold or other cause, or whether even a different race of people succeeding the Germans is situated between the sea and the eastern Germans, where here it is absolutely evident that the word German stands for Scythian because it was nothing but Scythians beyond the sea. For I know neither the Bastarne, nor the Saromate, nor, in a word, any of the peoples who dwell above the Pontus. And that's Geography, Book 7, Chapter 2. By know, Strabo must mean that he didn't know them firsthand, and therefore he was not able to describe them completely, since both Theodorus Siculus some years before and Tacitus some years after confirm all of Strabo's statements concerning the Sarmatians, the Bastarnae, and the Germans. Once one accepts as a fact that Strabo and later writers used German to describe the people that Diodorus and earlier writers called Scythian and then Galatahi, which shall hopefully be further established in our next discussion, which concerns a people called the Pucetians. The Pucetians, because they lived in a place called Puke. Puke means pine tree in Greek. Theodorus Siculus mentions the Pucetians, where he says that Agathocles, king of Sicily, supplied both the Iapigians and the Pucetians with pirate ships, receiving in return a share of their booty. That's in the Library of History, Book 21. And Theodorus was describing the, a, a war that Sicily was having at that time with Carthage, Macedon, and, quote-unquote, the barbarians of Italy around 295 B.C. Strabo tells us that certain of the Bastonians lived on Puke, Puke means pine, which was an island in the Danube. And therefore, the people were called, in Strabo, it's transliterated, Pucini, or Pucini, which must be Diodorus Siculus's Pucetians, which is 
puketioi rather than pukenoi. There's a very slight variation in spelling in the endings which Strabo and Diodorus each give these people. The name and the location of them are identical in both writers. Strabo says that it was at the lower part of Puke that Darius made his pontoon bridge, although the bridge could have been constructed at the upper part also. So we see that the Puketians of the time of Strabo are the same people that Polybius said were Scythians when Darius built that same bridge, referring to the bridge that the Persian king had made so that he could cross over and attack the Scythians and conquer them before his invasion of Greece. Strabo also names other tribes of the Bastarnae, the Atmoni and the Sidoni and the Roxolani, who roamed the plains between the Tanais and the Baristanes, the Don and the Dnieper rivers. And here is more evidence that the Germanic Bastarnae are of the European Scythians. The Roxolani, Strabo tells us, are known from their wars with Mithridates Eupater, who was the king of Pontus from 120 to 63 BC. Elsewhere, where Diodorus Siculus discusses Macedonian and Thracian relations with their neighbors during this period, Diodorus mentions only Scythians in this region. He calls them Scythians, but here they're described at length as Bastarnae, and Strabo is able to name subdivisions, sub-tribes of the Bastarnae by name. Speaking of Philip of Macedon in his Library of History, Book 16, Theodore Siculus states that when he had conquered war, in war, Illyrians, Pahionians, Thracians, Scythians, and all the peoples in the vicinity of these, he planned to overthrow the Persian kingdom, and after transporting his armaments into Asia, was in the act of liberating the Greek cities. But, cut short by fate, in mid-career, he left armies so numerous and powerful that his son Alexander had no need to apply for allies in his attempt to overthrow the Persian supremacy. Then later, speaking about the successor wars which had followed in the aftermath of the deaths of Philip's son Alexander, Theodore Siculus, in his Library of History, in Book 19, said, when the activities of this year had come to an end, Theophrastus obtained the archonship in Athens, and Marcus Publius and Gaius Sulpicius became consuls in Rome. While these were in office, the people of Calantia, who lived on the left side of the Pontus, and who were subject to a garrison that had been sent by Lysimachus, drove out this garrison and made an effort to gain autonomy. In like manner, they freed the city of the Istrians, the city of the Istrians, the city, Ister was the name of the Danube, and Istria was a city, a Greek city, on the Black Sea, very close to the Danube. Herodotus had visited Istria and, and commented at length upon what he had found at the Danube, 
and the Scythians and the Scythian rivers and all of that in, in, in his histories. In like manner, they freed the city of the Istrians and other neighboring cities and formed an alliance with them, binding them to fight together against the prince, meaning the Simacus. They also brought into the alliance those of the Thracians and Scythians whose lands bordered upon their own, so that the whole was a union that had weight and could offer battle with strong forces. Now, it should be manifest here, because here Diodorus Siculus is writing about the time of Philip of Macedon, which is perhaps 350 B.C., and the successor wars in the aftermath of the death of Alexander the Great, which took place maybe 300, 310, down to about 280 B.C., and he's talking about all the peoples in this area north of Macedonia and between Macedonia and the Black Sea and north of Thrace. And he's only mentioning Scythians. There are no Galatahi in this account. There are no Bastarnae in, in these accounts. He's talking about Scythians. It should manifest here that Bastarnae is a name for the tribes of the Scythians, which were later called Galatahi, and even later called Germans. We've just seen the Bastarnae called Galatahi in one history, and then Germans by Strabo. They were even later called Germans who had long occupied the same area. The people did not change. The Scythians, the Thucydides, described as hugely powerful, inconquerable. They didn't just disappear and get replaced by Galatahi. The Galatahi didn't just disappear and get replaced by Germans. We see a progression in the names applied to the same people. First Scythian, then Galatahi, then they have um, tribal divisions, divisions because the Greeks become more familiar with them and, and can assign um, names distinguishing different branches of them, and then they're all called German. In one place, Strabo seems to distinguish the Bastarnae from the Scythians, where he says that the Thracians had suffered the encroachment of Scythians and Bastanians and Sarnations from north of the Danube. But this does not mean that Strabo counted them as a distinct people. Rather, Strabo in that passage is referencing a long, extended period of time. The Germans suffered encroachments of, of the English and the Americans. That doesn't mean that the Americans aren't English for the most part. It's just an example. But Strabo's referencing an extended period of time. And in the earliest migrations of the Scythians into Thrace, well, that was an encroachment of the Scythians. Later Scythians were called Bastarnae, and they encroached upon the Thracians again. So they're not necessarily two different peoples. Strabo's talking about the, the 6th century BC in one instance and the 2nd century BC in another. 
In the earliest migrations of the Scythians into Thrace, no particular tribe was distinguished among them, where the Bastane are named only much later, yet they are clearly the same people as those Scythians inhabiting the same area throughout the centuries up until Strabo's time. Strabo also distinguishes the Bastane for another reason. Because Strabo, and, and we'll see Tacitus do the same thing, questions whether the Bastarnae are really German, where he says in Book 7, Chapter 3, that they also being, one might say, of Germanic stock. And it is learned from Tacitus, who says that the Pusini, however, who are sometimes called Bastarne, are like the Germans in their language, manner of life, and mode of settlement and habitation. But mixed marriages are giving them something of the repulsive appearance of the Sarmatians. And so Tacitus says, I do not know whether to class the tribes of the Pusini the Venedi, or the Slavic Wends, and the Fene, or the Finns, with the Germans, or with the Sarmatians. And that's the Germania, chapter 46. So it is evident that on the heels of the Germans, who were the westward migrating Scythians, were the Slavic tribes pushing into Western Europe from Asia, and intermingling with them along the way. And Tacitus states that, and Strabo only kind of wonders about it. In the Germania, Tacitus gives an account of how the Germans came to be so-called, stating that the name Germania, however, is said to have been only recently applied to the country. The first people to cross the Rhine and appropriate Gallic territory though they are now known as the Tungri, were at that time called Germani. And what was at the first the name of this one tribe, not of the entire race, gradually came into general use in the wider sense. It was first applied to the whole people by the conquerors of the Gauls to frighten them. Later, all the Germans adopted it and called themselves by the new name. And, and we sort of reject that account outright. The Germans did not use the name German of themselves, and they never did. They called themselves Teutons or Deutsch, depending on the dialect or several other things. They called themselves by the names of their own tribes, the Alemanni and, and the Saxons and things like that. Rather, the word German is strictly the Roman term for them. When Latin became the language of learning in the Middle Ages, the name prevailed among many of the peoples outside of Germany, but not all. The French don't call Germans German. They call them Alemans. The Spanish call them Alemanni. Not everybody calls the Germans German, and the Germans never called themselves Germans. Neither Theodore Siculus nor Strabo, who both knew more of the tribes of Celtica west of the Rhine and south of the Alps than they knew of Germany, 
ever mention such a story, nor did they ever mention any individual tribe named Germani. Neither did Caesar in the Gallic War, where he used the name Germani of those tribes east of the Rhine, and he did not corroborate any part of Tacitus's story concerning this name. So Tacitus's story here is implausible. Now, there is a coincidence. There was apparently a tribe of this name, Germanians, mentioned by Herodotus as being among the Persians in the Histories Book 1, paragraph or chapter 125. And, and I believe that's a coincidence. There is nothing in between the time of Herodotus to the time of Caesar by which to connect the name of this particular tribe to the West. Diodorus Siculus and all of the other earlier writers calling all of these tribes of the North Galatahi, the account of Strabo about the origin of the name for the Germans is much more credible that the Germans were so-called by the Romans because they were esteemed to be genuine Galatahi, meaning to refer to those Galatahi north of the Danube who were not mixed with Thracians or Greeks or Etruscans or any of the other previous inhabitants of the European coasts, which we see in, in the attested histories here, they were very accustomed to doing once they settled down. The name Germania is the Latin word for genuine. So Strabo's account of the name is much more plausible. Like Strabo, Tacitus tells us that Germany stretched from the Rhine in the west to the east as far as the Bastarne, whom he calls Pusini. Although by this time, the Veneti and the Sarmatians, which are evidently Slavic tribes, had also advanced into those parts of Europe west of the Dniester and north of the Danube. And that's um, recorded by Tacitus in Germania, Chapter 46, the Veneti are the later winds of German history. They lived in, um, well, well, they tried to invade Saxony. They the winds of eastern Germany who occupied the area around what we know as Brandenburg, southwest of Berlin. As we have seen, Tacitus would not account the Sarmatians as Germans. And Theodorus Siculus tells us that the Sarmatians were derived from the Medes, not from the Scythians, where we have seen that the Germans are derived from the Scythians. Yet Tacitus wasn't as certain concerning the Veneti, or the Wends, the Fanny, or the Finns, and the Pusini, or the Bastarne. But Tacitus's reasons were rather arbitrary. And we're going to talk about that because Tacitus, he did good in his descriptions of these people, but when he tried to um, distinguish between, he, he tried to make um, artificial distinctions between Gauls and Germans that don't hold up. For, and, and Slavs and Germans that, that really don't hold up. For instance, 
Tacitus spoke of the Vestane mingling with the Sarmatians. And he said of the Wends that they have adopted many Sarmatian habits. For their plundering forays take them all over the wooded and mountainous highlands that lie between the Pusini and the Fenni, or Finns. Nevertheless, they are on the whole to be classed as Germans, for they have settled homes, carry shields, and are fond of traveling, and traveling fast on foot, differing in all these respects from the Sarmatians who live in wagons or on horseback. And that's the Germania, paragraph 46. But living in wagons and on horseback was the manner by which Strabo's Germans and Scythians had lived. Strabo writing, perhaps 90 years before Tacitus, maybe a little less than that. And it seems that Tacitus's classification depends only upon whether or not these once nomadic tribes had settled into a given area, and that is indeed a quite arbitrary distinction. The Veneti may only have been later classified as Slavs because of their language. Nevertheless, there were wars between the Saxons and the Wends down through the time of Otto I, Otto I, the Saxon king who defeated and ended the menaces to Germans from both the Magyars and the Wends around 955 A.D. Yet Tacitus never mentioned any Scythians in Europe. Although his Germany stretched, just like that of Strabo, from the Rhine to the Black Sea, if the Scythians of the West are not the Germans, then in a very short time, and after so many centuries of being so well entrenched in Europe, those Scythians whom Thucydides said were so powerful had simply vanished into thin air. And the Germans, coming from nowhere, consumed the entire northern continent without any evidence of a cataclysm or a struggle. Rather, as we have demonstrated throughout all parts of this essay, the Germans are indeed the Scythians, and the Saxons of the West are the Sacae of the East. And they descended from those Sacans whom the Persian kings Cyrus and Darius could not defeat. In the Germania, Tacitus conjectures that at one time the tribes of Gaul migrated east into Germany because the Gauls had been more powerful than the Germans. By this, Tacitus attempts to account for the presence of tribes which he considered Gallic in regions east of the Rhine, such as the Boii and the Cotini. Of the Cotini, Tacitus distinguishes them from the Germans by language, saying that the Cotini and the Asi are not Germans. That is proved by their languages, Celtic in one case, Pannonian in the other. Yet language is no determinant to race. And there were many facts on the tongue of Germany and which Tacitus classified the Ahisti along the Baltic shore as Germans, but tells us 
that their language was more like the British, although they had the same customs and fashions as the Swebi. And the British spoke Celtic dialects at that time, much like those of Gaul. As Tacitus himself had stated in the Agricola, chapter 11. So Tacitus, trying to draw artificial distinctions between Germans and, and, and Gauls, had confused himself. Today's Estonians, who are clearly the, the, the descendants of the ancient Ahisti, today's Estonians speak a language which is classified as Finno-Ugric and not even Indo-European. Tacitus does not mention the language of the Fenni and was unsure whether to classify them as Germans as well. Speaking of the Treviri and the Nervi, tribes of Gaul, tribes of modern France, Tacitus seems to doubt the German descent to which they claim, where he describes the German tribes which had migrated west of the Rhine. But here Tacitus fails to address their language or any other significant reason to doubt their claim, stating only that such a glorious origin, they feel, should prevent their being thought to resemble the unwarlike Gauls. And here, saying this, Tacitus' distinction between Gaul and German crumbles, being revealed as both arbitrary and prejudiced. Writing nearly 100 years earlier, Strabo tells us that the whole race, which is now called both Gallic and Galatic, meaning the Galatahi, is war-mad and both high-spirited and quick for battle, although otherwise simple and not ill-mannered. Going on to describe their strength and their large physiques, among other things, while also explaining that the Gauls with the Germans are kinsmen to one another. Strabo also attests that both the Treviri and the Nervi are indeed German. It is clear that Tacitus's distinction between Germans, whom Strabo considered to be genuine Galatahi, and Gauls, or Galatahi, afforded him a way by which to display his own contempt for those tribes who had been conquered by Rome. Hence, Tacitus called them real Gauls, and who had adopted the civilization of their conquerors, and Tacitus was showing contempt for them. And Tacitus had already shown that same contempt for the Britons who were conquered by Rome in the Agricola, chapter 21. So Tacitus did very well in some respects, but when he tried to classify people from one another, Based on language, he was clearly confused. Based on nature, customs, and habits, he was clearly prejudiced. Elsewhere, Tacitus himself acknowledged that the Gauls had become unwarlike only under Roman subjection in chapter 11 of the Germania.
Yet among the whites, among the whites, the cultural or political state of a tribe or nation is certainly a less reliable determinant of race than is its language. And Tacitus's distinctions in these areas are therefore demonstrated to be wholly unreliable. He made them for political reasons and not for the sake of true historical or anthropological inquiry. The Greek writers tell us that the Galatahi and the Germans are one and the same race, and the Eastern inscriptions tell us just as much concerning their ancestors. The Cimmerians, Sakans, and Scythians. I hope that um, people were able to follow this. This concludes our presentation of my essay, Classical Records and German Origins, Part 5. For the most part, I set out in, in this um, series of essays only to prove that the people called the Cimmerians, the Sake, the Galatahi, the Scythians, and the Germans were indeed all one and the same people and all had their origin in Asia and ultimately in Mesopotamia. In earlier essays, Classical Records and the Origins of the Scythians, Parthians, and Related Tribes, and Herodotus, um, Scythians, Persians, and Prophecy, those are posted at Christogenia still, that they, in those I set out to prove the connections between the ancient Israelites and the Scythians and Cimmerians from strictly historical classical sources. So, in the last part of this essay, in part six, we move on to the English. Because what really sickens me, and, and I'll probably repeat this when I present this essay, is the British-Israel idea that somehow the English and the Germans are two different peoples. That is a crime. And that has afforded the English the ability to be controlled by the Jews in the destruction of their own Germanic brethren. We will present that part of this essay in the weeks to come. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.